Welcome to this week's episode of the Bet on Yourself podcast, where we speak to some of the world's most inspirational people who have all, at some points in their career, taken a huge bet on themselves, transforming them personally and professionally. Today, I am speaking to Sun Yi, the founder of Night Owls, an award-winning branding and web design agency. While they have worked with brands like Spotify and the American Red Cross, Night Owls has found its niche in working with some of the world's leading personal brand names like Jay Shetty and Gabby Bernstein and perfecting the art of telling other people's stories. Sun has done it all, working nine to five corporate jobs to founding and leading and leaving his own businesses. With such a varied journey, Sun has picked up plenty of best practices along the way, but most importantly, he's learned what not to do. That's what's been behind the success of Night Owls, and now he is sharing it with the world as he turns his hand to teaching and mentorship. Sun's journey and outlook is captivating, and I can't wait to share that part of it with you today. If you enjoy it as much as I think you will, then be sure to let me know in all the usual places, such as a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you happen to be listening right now. Sun Yi, I want to welcome you to the Bet on Yourself podcast. Thanks so much for being with me today. Thank you for having me. This is going to be really fun. So you and I have known each other for a while. We got connected through a mutual friend, and I've a big, been a big fan for a while. <laughs> um, but before we dive into all the exciting things that you're offering at the moment, I wonder if we can start at the very beginning. Can you tell me about what a young son thought he would <laughs> be when he grew up? Like, what was your original dream? Are we talking firefighter? Are we talking chemist? Like, oh, what, original where were dream. your passion? Oh, wow. Yeah, like five-year-old. <laughs> What, what so I always like wanted to be, I didn't, I always wanted to be a boss. I didn't know for what. <laughs> I just wanted to be a boss. Just because like I, I, grew, I think I grew up in a society where like being a boss was look, looked up to. And, but one thing I remember is like I always want, was drawn toward creative things, right? I always wanted to do design, something creative like that. But I, I wasn't creative. I was very analytical. I was good in math, science, and like my dad would always make fun of me growing up, like saying that I'm really, really good at copy because I I can copy a drawing, like a rep exact replica of a drawing, like, but I couldn't like come up with original pieces, right? I couldn't come up with my original idea. So even when I do projects, I always copy. So my dad would always make fun of me for that, and and like what happened was when I got into design, which was when I was around 19 years old. I couldn't, like, I would copy, I would mimic a design. Oh, I'm like, oh, I like that style. I would do it. But for some reason, it doesn't look right. It doesn't look, that one looks good, but my version doesn't look good, right? For, so, so I didn't quite understand it. So I just started copying it, like, pixel by pixel, like, down to the T, right? Like, every pixel. And then I kept doing that over and over and over again. And, you know, I felt like kind of an imposter because, like, I don't, I don't, I'm not actually coming up with my own design. All, I'm, all I know is like in Photoshop how to replicate a design, right? But doing that like a hundred times, I started seeing patterns of like what's, what works, what doesn't work and things like that. But anyway, long story short, when I started my own agency and I started training people, that's why I understand like my actual uh, strength is not the design side, but understanding like the... Um, like analytically understand, like reverse engineering what what good design is, bad design is, things like that. Because like once one time I gave a one of my interns like a 
somebody came to me and asked me to look at their design and I was like, oh, okay, always put this much ratio of space around the logo. Make sure these things are always aligned. Make sure that you leave this much percentage of like I gave him a feedback in a mathematical way. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but then he applied all those and then it, it looked amazing, right? And then he I was blown that. away. And I was blown yeah. away. I was like, oh, and then that's kind of like when I realized like my actual strength, the f- what I've been hating my whole life, like I hated that I was analytical and mathematical and that I wasn't creative. But my weakness actually ended up being my biggest strength because now what people love me for is the fact that I can make them say, I never thought of it that way. And the way I do it is by reverse engineering something, (laughs) something they already know, and then feeding it back to them in a way they never thought of, right? So, yeah, so, so now, basically, finally, what I realized is like, I love teaching. I love learning and teaching. So that's kind of why I, I'm shifting from my agency side, more like building a community, teaching, learning, things like that. You have so many teasers of where this conversation is going to go. I want to hit on each one of those uh, major milestones that you've just uh, mentioned in your answer. I'm curious, what was your original medium as you were copying art? Did, was that like a sketchbook or were you immediately on a computer? You're younger no, than me, no, so no. maybe you had the advantage of it. <laughs> so how did you move from medium to medium and eventually be doing design copy? What was that pathway like? Did you study, yeah. for example, engineering in school or ha- or art in school? Oh, yeah, How, I skipped the whole path? part, huh? Okay, so, <laughs> <laughs> so when I was young, I, I grew up in, um, so I'm 42. So I grew up without the internet, without even a computer. Okay, so, you and I are more or less same generation. Got okay, it, okay. Yeah. So yeah. since I grew up without a computer, uh, Everything was like drawing, right? So in the beginning, I would like do photorealistic. Like, I remember taking like a Mariah Carey cover, CD, CD cover, and then like uh-huh. doing like a photorealistic replica of that. Like things like by that. By hand? Right? Yeah, by hand. Yeah. That's amazing. Like, <laughs> are we talking like pen and ink or pencil? Or pencil, or yeah. Wow. Yeah. You just had a natural gift for that. That that came relatively easily I want to say you. it's a, yeah, I have a gift for copying. <laughs> <laughs> a serious skill. I mean, when you learn about the Impressionist painters, all of them can do photorealism perfectly. And then they could move into it's kind of like when you learn, if you're a jazz musician, they have to learn the classical scales, and then they can start riffing and playing on that. And so I think I actually think that foundation makes a lot of sense to me to be able to copy. Yeah, yeah, that and then put your own spin on it. But um, I love that this behind the scenes formula was was um, coming into your brain of like the ratios and and the shading and what makes it really work, even if in the moment you weren't fully appreciating what you were learning in the process of copying. That's fascinating. Okay, that's true. So like, because like, right? people say you have like you have to know the rules before you can break the rules, right? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what, what you're, you're talking doing. about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I see it. Okay, so you had this natural gift. What did you end up studying? Did you follow your math and science yeah. uh, talents in in school? So that's what you did formally. Yeah, so in in my family, and I think a lot of like uh, Asian families, uh, they they want you to go for practical because like you know you're you're risking a lot to come to this country and do this. Like the last thing they want you to do is like suffer in your career, right? So they 
they pressure you to go into the you know the doctor lawyer engineering like the the safe jobs right <laughs> the, the safe well-paying jobs right so um in my family like for me to go after arts wasn't even like it wasn't even like a consideration because that's something you don't make money in right <laughs> and <laughs> So I went up. I went after engineering. I, I I did engineering. I learned computer science there, but didn't right. I, somehow I passed the course, but I didn't know how to code. You know what I mean? And and this is pretty much almost all programmers. Like anybody who went into school, if they didn't already know how to, by the time you're 18, if you don't already ha- know how to code, doesn't matter if you spend four years in university. At the end, you're still not gonna know how to code. Everyone that know. I know that knows how to code already knew how to code before going into school. Do you I've heard I mean? that as well. Yeah. And actually some of the most talented coders that I worked with at both Amazon and Google learned it the exact same way that you just described you learning art by just copying code. I mean, I'm old enough that like they were taking books out of the library, reading these coding manuals, replicating it, and then fiddling with it to see what happened when they were. So it's very similar to your process. But yeah, they too described it as they they were very much self-taught, at least these original um, engineers that I worked with. And then they could start iterating. So that's interesting. So you're in school, you're you're doing well, you're passing the course, but this is not where your passion lies. How did you eventually get back to this? Well, really what you did was a hybrid, right? You've You've used your artistic natural talents and passions and you did use those coding skills to you know use that in a very modern way through yeah. um design well right? i so, didn't actually learn how to code until later in my i'll get into that okay. story later yeah but when i was 19 this was my freshman year in college um so i was studying engineering and for some reason there was an html book on my desk at home right so all of a sudden i just started playing with it and and the beauty for me was with HTML is that you can do something, save it, and you can see it on the browser right away. Like it doesn't take much from that step zero to one. Like you can see your input right away. And that got me excited. So I started like, I stayed up all night just trying that. And then I, at that point, I wasn't even thinking design. I was just like, oh, this is cool that I can make a homepage. And this is, nobody had a website before. At this time, like literally none of the biggest companies had a website. Like this was like 97. Um, but what happened was I made a website for this company that I was part-time working in. I, I used to work for this company, uh, which go to, goes to computer shows and sell computers. And I would literally build, I learned how to build a computer and sell computers. So I learned... So I got my first like foot into like how computers as well as sales in that first job. And I didn't even know it. But while I was there, uh, I just built a website for that company for fun. Okay. But, but I needed to like, I couldn't just do a text space. I needed graphics. So I learned how to just use a, a paint shop, uh, this software called Paint Shop Pro which is like a step above paint. (laughs) So I did that. And then I made like three or four websites for friends that way, like really ghetto fabulous websites, right? And then I used that to get an internship 
at an agency as a portfolio. I used that as a portfolio. And at this time, was like really great. Like this is when dot-com was like happening. So everybody was just hiring. You walk in, they'll hire you. Walk in, they'll hire you. And in that job is where I learned everything. In, in, I was there for 11 months. And in, the, in that 11 months, I learned Photoshop, Illustrator. I learned how to code properly. Because everybody was there was like professional. They all went to design school. But I, I want to tell this one story. I, when I went in, went in there, I felt like the biggest fraud. Because here I am. Everyone used a Mac. I was using a PC. I've never used a Mac before. Everybody uses Adobe products like Photoshop, Illustrator. I'm here using like Paint Shop and Notepad. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't go to, everybody went to art school, you know, like Parsons, like all of those things, right? And I didn't. So I felt like the biggest imposter, but there was an art director there who called me a designer. Like, I remember like vividly, we went to a, a meeting with Citigroup, Citibank, and he said, oh, this is our designer son. And that one phrase <clears throat> made such an impact for me because from that point on, I saw myself as a designer. And at, from that point on, I literally followed him everywhere. I would sit, literally sit next to him. He was like, get away from me, right? But I just absorbed, I just go like, I just shadowed him and just absorbed everything I possibly can. And if I didn't, um, I wouldn't have learned all those things. And by the time I left that company, I was like one of their top designers. So I went from an imposter intern who didn't even think of myself as a designer to, to being one of the top designers there. And I actually love, that was so memorable for me that when I started, 10 years later, when I started my own agency, that, that was kind of my goal, like what he did for me. Because he opened my eyes to think, think that I can do something that I never thought I could be. So I just started doing that with my employees and I saw how quickly they move up, right? Like in my agency, like people would start as an intern, like three years later, they would go become creative director at like Google. <laughs> like three years later, they would start their own agency. Like, like my first intern right now, his company is like valued at $60 million. Like this is what happened at Night Owl. And I guess that's one of the reasons why I realized, okay, my real strength is not really design or client service. It's actually training people. And yeah. Yeah. I love that story because I've heard that from so many, so many high impact people that they came into their career through a non-traditional path. They found a mentor, a leader that they wanted to become like and absorbed as much information as possible. And that really turned that novice status into an advantage because all those people who went to Parsons and all these design schools had learned one particular way of doing it. Um, but you had the freedom of additional creativity because you didn't know the quote unquote way it was supposed to be done. I see so many people of high impact that that was their path, that they just came at it kind of backwards and used that as a major advantage um, in their career, whether that was a master plan or not. Um, the right people realize and lean into that rather than letting it hold them back. And I so relate to your story of like when he calls you a designer, like finally having, having that light bulb being like, oh my gosh, I'm a designer now. Um, <laughs> I, I had a very similar experience at early Amazon in the early 2000s where my, I too had no idea what I was doing. I, you know, within a couple of months felt like I had no business having this job. <laughs> I was very unqualified. But then I saw a lot of creative 
people working really, really hard and learning really fast. And um, it was a, an environment where I could do the same. Um, That's awesome. I love, yeah. I love that path. I, I find this as such a common denominator among high-performing people that I admire. So I'm really glad you shared that. So you went into, you became a freelance web designer. Um, then you became creative director and COO at Webio. I hope I'm saying that correctly. <laughs> so what led you from that path of uh, freelance and then you tried working for someone else and then you decided to found Night Owls, which is wildly successful, which we'll get into next. But what was that original inspiration to go out and set up your own agency, your yeah. own design firm? What, so, what was that path like entrepreneurship? It, it was actually a, a drawn out path. So I was in that company and 2001 that dot-com first happened and then like from that point on I actually wanted the safest job like because right after that I actually wanted to start my own agency so after I got laid off from that company I went off and started a agency called Webio but that was 10 years before I actually joined Webio with a, with a friend but then it was really, really tough to get that off the ground because we had no money <laughs> and like no clients, right? So I kind of like split up with that guy. And then I went to work at a really, really boring nine to five job um, in, in a company called Cablevision, which is now AMC Networks. But there... In, in that boring nine-to-five job, I learned so much, actually. Now, looking back, I learned so much. Like, number one, I learned what's good about those jobs, corporates, and what's bad about it, right? Like, I think what's bad about it is the complacent, the complacency. You get a little bit lazy when you're in that environment where you're getting a cushy two-week two paycheck every two weeks, and, you know, not everybody's really contributing, like, 100%, right? Yeah, but then the, in autopilot mode. Exactly. Yeah. But the, mm -hmm. the other side of that coin is I learned how valuable it is for me to provide employees with security, safety of that paycheck coming in every two weeks, the safety of like getting a Christmas bonus so that they can pay for their gifts. Like those things, like I learned the, the great parts of corporate. Because a lot of people don't talk about that, right? But that's the beauty, the, the, the amazing like miracle of big companies is that, you know, you, you get severance. You, get, you, you don't have to worry about any of that, right? So I knew the importance of that too. And I also understood the, the importance of how things operate at a big scale, like that, that it moves a lot slower. And I also started seeing how it could be a lot more efficient too. But anyway, I didn't know all of that while I was working there. While I was there, I was just like getting my paycheck. Like, But then after about five years, I got the itch again. And at that time, I wanted to be a filmmaker. <laughs> so I went to go to night, like film school at night, right? In this school called New York Film Academy. And while I was there, I wanted to film, be a filmmaker, so I quit my nine-to-five job. I started working at New York Film Academy, actually, uh, as a web designer. And I started like doing freelance on the side so I can save money to buy this camera. Okay, So 
I started freelancing to make money so I can be a filmmaker. But that actually ended up becoming so... That freelancing made me quit my job, started freelancing, which turned into... Uh, and then around that time, um, I reconnect with my friend from when I started Webio. So that's when like I kind of joined his team and became a partner of that company for two years. But while I was there, I learned everything. I learned everything about how not to run a business because this guy, he, he comes from a sales background. He don't know anything about websites, uh, the actual process. And he was, it was a sales driven and a lot of agencies run this way. And we just became a factory where we're just, we have a process. Where we're just churning out projects. And pretty much every website is the same, right? <laughs> because of that, right? And I just hated it there. And, and I saw like how, how the employee was being treated. And just in every level, I just saw exactly what not to do. So two years later, I finally had it. Fuck it. I left. And that's when I started Night Out. With... <laughs> At that time, I was scared that I couldn't get clients. So... If, if anybody's running an agency out there is freelancing, this is gonna, they're going to understand what I mean. Um, at that time, we had 60 projects in the pipeline. We only had like 12 employees. And it was just like, everybody was just like churning this out. And oh, there's never a moment because like these projects are keep piling up, right? Because the salespeople are out there like, because it's a sales focused company. They're, they're, they're not stop selling, right? And I see a lot of like, I would go to, it would be typical for me to go to another agency party and I would ask the project manager, like, how many projects are you working on? Like you personally, right? And it, it's common for them to be like, oh, 17. I'm like, <laughs> like how, <laughs> how can you like pay attention to each project when you're working on 17 projects, right? And this is common in agencies. So, so that's something I learned not to do. So when I started my agency, like I, so we did everything like the opposite of that and yeah i mean that's not the end of the story but that's how it, i transitioned from there to starting night out i there's so much to unpack in that i think there's so much wisdom i love that you have tried both the startup world you've had co-founder challenges you've done traditional nine to five and you've gathered all these best practices you've learned a lot of things the hard way me too i relate to so much of your story um i've been in early startups that then grew into behemoth companies across the 12 years i was at google for example and the pros and cons of each right i i miss elements of both like i love the crazy early years of google and i also now that i am a founder myself i do kind of miss that like like you were saying, the safety net of a corporate job. Uh, it's all on me now, and I, I've got to sign those paychecks every month. Um, so yeah, there's pros and cons of both. But I really love what you've done there is, it sounds to me, at least in retrospect, you see how all these dots connected to lead you to found an agency that's really different and that really shows up in your work. Um, I So Night Owls, for example, I mean, you have a very impressive client list. We're talking Fortune 500 companies like American Red Cross and Spotify, Columbia University, Swell, et cetera, but also best-selling authors, public speakers, people whose brands are very, very personal. And these are household names also like Jay Shetty, Mel Robbins, Gabby Bernstein, et cetera. 
But I think what stands out for me, actually, this is a true story. When I founded my company and I was like, okay, I need a personal website for the very first time in my life. Because while I was at Google, I had no online presence whatsoever. Like literally no Instagram, no Twitter, nothing. So when I set up my own shop, I was like, it's like I basically don't exist. So I started going around to websites and saving the ones that I really liked that I thought, okay, this has an element I would like to incorporate into my personal brand, et cetera. And do you know (laughs) when I did an audit and I sent it to a web team, six of those 10 were yours. I'm not kidding. Six of the 10 were a night owl. (laughs) I'm not joking. Um, And so I'm a big fan. I think why it resonated with me and it resonates with so many people is that authenticity, Mm -hmm. the way in which I didn't realize it was the same agency that had done them because each of them felt so personal to the client, so highly refined, authentic, relatable. I I, I felt like those people were my friends. So this is not by accident. So you touched on this a little bit in the very beginning of our conversation about the way that you help craft this hero's journey. And it makes so much sense that you're not asking your designers to just churn through 17 like projects mm-hmm. at a time. It all has that very special handheld touch. Can yeah. you walk us through what does that hero's journey story look like? And this is a nice teaser also for what you're doing right now. And you're teaching a course literally about yeah. this. Um, yeah, so yeah, yeah. can you tell me how do you... How do you put this um, hero's journey into play when you're starting to represent corporate brands and especially those personal brands? Like, how do okay. you, if I was Got starting it. at your company right at, <clears throat> at Night Owls right now, or if I was taking your course, which is called The Art of Storytelling, um, what are some places that you start? What's your best practices? I mean, I would say for corporate brands, um, rather than focusing on like a hero's journey story, because for a lot of corporate brands, their stories are going to be either an inventor's journey, which is not going to be for a big company. That's more like the companies you see on Shark Tank. Because a lot of times the, the inventor's journey story is the one like, oh, I was have, facing this problem. But then one day I said, there's got to be a better way. So I fixed, I made it myself and people started loving it. It became a success. That's the inventor's journey story, right? Like if you have a story like that, amazing. But most most brands don't, okay? So what I would say focus on is simplifying your message because a lot of businesses are really, really bad because we we were taught our whole life how to make things more complex. Like, I don't know if you did this, but every time I did a research paper or anything like that, I would like write it and then I would literally go through the source to make it more complex yeah. <laughs> rather than make it more simple, <laughs> right? Right. And right. that's to make it sound more com- complex than it really is, right? So we were taught that our whole life. So I would say, scale that back i think the biggest problems a lot of corporate brands the biggest mistakes they make is when you go to their website you don't really understand what they're saying like most people don't understand so you just got to dumb it down so i started doing that for columbia university medical center like companies brands like these and what i started noticing is like once we put it out there a few months later the feedback will be like tremendous right and usually these website feedbacks we don't get for a few months because a lot of times when we make websites, we, we think of a hundred things that they never even thought of, a hundred steps ahead. But you don't see the fruits of that until you put it out there. And the owner of that website after a year, after hearing their actual customers saying, you know what I loved about your website is that no other websites do this. But the fact that you did this, and though this is thing, things that my client didn't even think of. And they're like, son... 
people always come to me like a year later and like son like i can't believe all the little things that you guys went into that i i didn't even think of right that they don't even realize until a year later but that's because one of the things that i do what i realize is that for corporate brands most people don't go, never go to the about page like when's the last time you went to like a, a, a big comp Amazon and clicked on the about, right? Nobody does that, right? But for personal brands, what I realized, and for small business, small brands like that, the Shark Tank type of brands, about is actually, about pages is the second most visited page on the mm -hmm. website. It is for so one, mine, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. so once I started realizing that, before that, what I was doing was I was doing all of this storytelling on corporate websites, where if you, on, on corporate websites, the one page we focus on is what we call the differentiator page. Like, why hire us? Why buy this? Why us, right? And we usually tell an entire story. And, and the story goes something like, uh, most myth, you know, the myth truth sandwich, I, I always talk about myth, like most uh, landscaping businesses work like this. And, and here's the problem with that, right? But this is how you solve that problem. And here's our solution, right? So once you put it like that, people can easily understand what the differentiator is. So, and we, we use a lot of animations and stuff to tell that story, right? So I did that for a while until one day, Gabby Bernstein walked into my office. I have no idea who this woman is at that time. Um, I've... This is a world that I didn't even know about, like this kind of personal development, self-help world. I've kind of heard, I saw Tony Robbins in Shallow Hell, but other than that, I don't know what it is. <laughs> but after working with Gabby Bernstein, I fell into a rabbit hole. Well, first, one thing I realized is that in the beginning, we were all inclusive, all, all full service agency, meaning uh, we do logos, branding, you know, like print you know, marketing, banner ads, website, everything you need, we'll do it, right? And then we realized that over time, we make more money when we specialize. So we just double down on websites. And what we noticed is that all the healthcare companies were coming to us because we have experience working with some big healthcare companies. And because they know that we're familiar with working with HIPAA compliant websites, that was like the reason why they were coming to us. So that's when I realized the power of niching down, right? Like when you niche down, because those people have, the hospitals have no nowhere else to go because they don't, every website, web company specializes in everything. It has really worked with HIPAA before. Whereas in every website we built, we work with HIPAA <laughs> and we don't specialize in everything. We know the hospital structure. We know what system they use. We know everything inside about about a hospital. And that was what to them. So later, but the, the downside was I wasn't, I wasn't happy. I wasn't happy. I, it got to a point where I felt like I was going, I was dreading waking up, going to work in my own company. Mm. Wow. Because I, yeah. I it, it went back to that agency kind of mode where, the only thing I was, because, you know, hospital websites are boring. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like these, these websites are really, really boring. You know what I mean? 
It was not passion aligned for you. No, it no, music, it was just work. Yeah. up that artistic creativity mm-hmm. side of you. Right. So how did you pivot for something that was obviously a cash cow that could be, you know, some golden handcuffs that's hard to let go of. But when you're waking up every day, like dreading working in your own company, what was it that moment with Gabby where you realized yeah, there's an exactly. opportunity here? Okay. So tell that's us about what that life to Gabby. moment. Okay. So at that moment, uh, I don't know if anybody would resonate with this, but I, most entrepreneurs that I know has gone through this point where from the moment I wake up till the moment I go to bed, all I'm doing is just putting out fires. Sound like, what's the status of our project? <laughs> Making up excuses, right? Like just like calming. And then like here, this employee is like threatening to quit. So I need to make him happy while this client's like yelling at me because two projects are behind schedule and I need to make sure these guys can get like, it's just doing that from the, so I just, all I'm getting is these attack emails and messages from everybody from the moment I go. And I just couldn't handle it. I was like, that's, yes, there are some entrepreneurs that love that. And I think those are like the really true <laughs> entrepreneurs at heart. Like I wasn't like that, right? So I was miserable until Gabby came in and I was like, who's this, who's this woman? But I started working with her and I started personally working on a project. And I just, it went back to like the early days when I'm, because when I'm working on a website for the American Red Cross, I'm working with the marketing director there, who's, it's just a nine to five job for her. She doesn't care about the projects. She just wants to get paid. Every, I'm working with a team of 12 people where their entire goal is to prove themselves through their worth. They don't really care about the project. They just want to take credit and put, Finger point for blame. So I went from working in an environment like this to working with the stakeholder, the stakeholder of the company, right? Building her web personal website, listening to her story. And what I started realizing after a few of those is that there's a something amazing that happens when I can tell their personal story on their about page, which is the second most visited page on the personal brand website something magical happens there. And what ended up happening is from that point on, we put the, we put our credit on the footer of every website. Same thing, other personal brands, her website got ranked on all these blog of like best person, top 10 best personal brand websites and all of these places feature. And everyone who wanted a personal brand would be like, oh, I love Gabby's website. They saw that we did it and people will start coming in. Not only that, every time Gabby is at a book event with other authors, like and other celebrities will come to her and be like, Gabby, I love your new website. Who did it? And Gabby will be like, you have to meet my web designer son. He's the best. And this was all happening. So all these big persons <laughs> were coming to us and our shift has focused, our focus has shifted from healthcare to personal brand. And now we're pretty much at a place that where if you are building a personal brand website, like there's literally no other place you can go to that's better than us. So if the, the top of the I top agree. of the top people will come to us now. <laughs> it's not even that. I agree. That's that's why you were the majority of the websites I saved as inspiration for my own. So I want to dive into two two disjointed things that you just touched on. One is I'm curious for so a lot of our listeners out there might not yet be at that level or be able to hire night owls for theirs. And some of them aren't even, 
you know, uh, celebrities or individual brands. Some people are entrepreneurs. They're in their nine to five and they're very much wanting to craft their narrative because that's an important part of their progression in their career yeah. is teaching people how to think of them and their talents and best utilize it. So I'm curious, do you have any tips for people who are entrepreneurs, not necessarily, you know, a, a Gabby Bernstein, but um, in in how they tell and craft their story to help leadership think of them a little bit differently or create some opportunities for themselves. And then I want to come back to how you hire and motivate these incredible designers that are now with you, that you're raising and, and accelerating the career so much. But I'm into, I'm curious, what, what advice would you give for an entrepreneur, an individual who's trying to do this on their own behalf? So I actually don't think there's a huge difference between entrepreneurs and personal brands, right? Because at the end of the day, you're selling yourself. And you know, when you walk into an interview, job interview, you're selling yourself. When you go on a date, you're selling yourself. So, right. you know, you, you might not know this, but people, before people meet you, they do Google you, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, I would say it's this. Like, I think content, the whole content game is two things. Like what you said, the storytelling, which is, which is really about authenticity, in my opinion. Because... At the end of the day, people want to hire people that they like. It's not really the people that have the best skill. I know this might, some people might not believe this, but it, this is true. It's absolutely true. I think that's definitely true in my yeah. experience as well. Yeah. Exactly. Because you don't want to work with someone you hate. No. Like if you're going to spend every day with this person. <laughs> yeah. If they're smart and you enjoy, I you know, we call them foxhole friends in tech. Um I can, they can, you can teach them to do anything. So if you're, if your skill is a little bit, yeah, the attitude, exactly. Can I imagine enjoying, you know, the hardest day in the office next to you? Yeah, I'll teach you, you know, whatever skills you're lacking. Okay. So I like that. So how do you craft this? I, what I so love, and you do this in nice little bite-sized pieces in your Instagram, is you help people learn to shape this story of, of helping them build up their know, like, and trust factor. Can you give us an outline of what are the common mistakes people do in this? And then maybe one or two like best practices of, of where to get started when you've never thought of doing it this way before. The two biggest common mistakes that I see people make is one, that it's, it's not authentic. They try, to, like, they try to craft the story too much, right? And then number two is that it's too complex. Like, I've never met a, somebody who tell me their story and I'm like, you could, like, tell me more. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I've never had that happen. Like, like I, I've, it could always be simpler, right? So, but what I, st- what I always start with is why are you telling the story, right? Like, because most people just tell the story of telling the story's sake without really like a goal. So the first thing I teach in my, in everything I teach is the whole point of the story is here. This is what you know how to do or your strength is. This is what the boss you're interviewing with or your client, whoever, your audience is struggling with. Okay. And you have the solution here. The only difference is they don't know that you have the solution. And the story is what does that. So how, how does this play out? Like, for example, let's say here's a, here's a person who wants to lose 30 pounds. Okay. Here's a fitness trainer who's helped people lose 30 pounds, right? 
But this fitness trainer is not selling that. This lot of fitness trainer I know overcomplicate the story because they make the personal brand all about them, whether they're thinking about the audience. So what they do is they talk about themselves, like all this, awareness, blah, 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 my experience, the clients that I work with, and they, they talk about how, you know, how important is, how mindset, how important mindset trauma dealing with uh, mindset blocks and things like that is important in health and all of those things that the audience don't care about. And the audience coming to them like, hey, son, I just want to lose 30 pounds, right? Skip, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? <laughs> so yeah. what needs to happen is there has to be a story here that says something like, let's say if I'm going through a hero, if I'm telling a hero's journey story, because the hero's journey story could be about me or, or about a, a, a client that I work with. So I'll do that one first. Hero's journey story will be something like this. Hey, I used to always want to lose 30 pounds. Always. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I will lose 30 pounds. I'll go right back and I'll have to lose 30 pounds again. Like, so are you in a place where you always have to lose 30 pounds? Like, here's my story. Blah, 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 blah. Until one day. That, that. So here's, the, here's how the story gets set up, right? Set up conflict and resolution. I used to always be this way. I always used to have to lose 30 pounds. Then automatically, the, the audience sees themselves. And it's like, oh, actually... You're, that's exactly where I am now, right? And then you You're relatable. The, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the inciting incident, the, the, the conflict is until one day this happened. And that's the part that you have to tell in detail what happened. And then the, what's the outcome, right? And that's when I realized that I can never keep the 30 pound off until I fix my mindset. Then... The, the audience will be like, oh, okay. Now they're willing to listen to the rest, right? But if you start with that, nobody wants to listen, listen to the rest. So that's one way to tell the hero's journey story. But a lot of people always tell, tell me, son, but I've never actually had that struggle that my clients go through, right? Like, that's another piece. Some people say that. Because, uh, like, you could be, maybe you were fit your whole life. You never had to worry about losing 30 pounds, but you're a great fitness trainer, right? Then what I usually say is uh, another story is uh, you're turning your weakness into strength. It's the story that I told before about my analytical side versus creative side. Realizing your, your weakness is actually your strength. That's another hero's journey story. That, so that could be that. But yeah, what it does is, so when you tell that story, what I always say is there's a perfect golden zone of, one, on one end, it's cliche. For example, if I say where there's a will, there's a way. Yeah, son, cliche. One year out, in one year out, the other is cliche. On one end, it's so unique that it doesn't apply to anyone else except you. <laughs> okay. And then there's a golden zone here where it's not cliche enough, not unique enough that people have never heard before, but it's not cliche enough that people feel like, oh yeah, I, I feel that too, right? And that's what makes people say, oh, I never, that's why when you go to a comedy club and a comedian makes a joke and you're kind of like, oh, that's so true. I never thought of it that way, right? And, and that's because it's in that golden zone of 
yes, I've experienced it enough, but I've never heard anyone say it. So it's, it's still unique. And you need to find, find that zone. And the perfect way to find that zone is to be completely, utterly authentic. You cannot craft a better story than the truth. So here's an example. I always tell this story of like, I hate first day of school. I used to hate first day of school because when you go around the room and everybody introduces themselves, the whole time I'm thinking, I'm trying to make up cool things to say that's going to make me look cool, not dumb, but not cliched, something everybody says. So I'm overthinking it. Well, and I have it in my mind. And then until somebody says it, I'm like, oh, he said it. So now I can't say it anymore. And I'm just overthinking until it gets to my turn. And I get up and I just blur (laughs) something out. I black out. And I sit down <laughs> and I, and then immediately I'm like, I should have said this, right? Yes. So yes. When I experienced, when I say this scenario, that's like a perfect example of that Goldie zone because that's something so many people have experienced, but not, nobody has heard it that way. So it, it makes people see like, oh shit, he's like that. I'm also like that. I thought I was the only one. And it all immediately creates a bond between me and that audience, right? So, and many of the reasons why people don't do this is because they're afraid. Like, what the story that I just sell, tell with the first day of school, it's, that's authentic to me. That's exactly how I felt. It's down to the T, very authentic. But I'm afraid to say it because what if I say it and people are like, son, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> I never had that. You're a loser. Like, I don't want to be, I don't want to be the weird one, weird one. Because yeah. if I'm the first person to say this, then then there's a risk there, right? Like, what yeah. if what if nobody else feels that way? And that's the real reason why people don't want to be that vulnerable. I think that's super relatable. I was definitely nodding my head as a I, I was a very uh, self-critical child. So I definitely had that terror first day of school. Um, but I was really relating to that even currently, like when I, when the pandemic happened and I had to start presenting at big conferences, just as I'm right now looking at this green light on my laptop where I didn't have the feedback from the audience, I couldn't engage. I had this speech that I was giving many, many times, sometimes many times a day. And I remember one particular presentation, I was giving this speech and I was very confident in the content. I had it fully memorized almost to a point of a fault. And then at the end, we were doing Q&As and I I kind of like, I don't know, I just kind of lost my train of thought and I just kind of like made a joke about it. Um, All of the comments afterwards were like, that's the moment I was like, I I get you. I like you. I find you relatable. She, um, in in fact, one person reached out to me on Twitter very specifically saying like, until then I was like, look at how perfect this is. So polished. I can't relate to this, whatever. And then she was like, in that moment when you got tripped up and you forgot where you were going with the story, she was like, then I fell in love with your content. And it was such a great lesson to me of not worrying about that. In fact, that can be alienating. And then the other thing you made me think of is I recently, I gave a speech in Abu Dhabi just a couple of weeks ago. And um, they actually paid me a lot more than my usual speaking fee. but And my speaking slot was literally one third the usual amount of time that I have. It took me twice as long to write a 20 minute keynote than it normally would for an hour keynote. Because like you said, I had to get rid of all the fluff. I had to go straight into it. I had to build up the no like, and trust factor right away. I had to get some really memorable points in there. And that's an art. That's really hard to do. And I feel like we don't self edit in that way. I learned a lot about my process 
in writing that. So I think there's so much wisdom in this hero's journey crafting that you're describing that takes a little bit of practice. And you're right. What resonates most is those authentic moments where you're like, people may or may not get what I'm about to say, Mm -hmm. but this is truly my experience and how I got from here to there. I thank you. Mm -hmm. I'll just add like one very, very practical tip. And one easy way to do that is to be um, specific. For example, a lot of hero's journey stories like, oh, I I give this example. It's like, oh, I was so bad at managing money. Like I was always broke, right? So that's, you're using adjective. You're, it's, it's not very, it's not descriptive. So what I would suggest is use actions to describe adjectives. So instead of saying, I I was bad at managing finances, I was always broke. Say something like, I would, like, I would treat my uh, friends to dinner on paydays. And for the next two weeks, I'll eat ramen noodles until my next paycheck or something like that. Then you're using action and you're drawing a picture of what broke or what managing finances look like. And that, a lot of people don't want to do that again because the more specific you make it, the more it real becomes and more vulnerable it is. But the more specific you make it is when. I love that. That's that's the a huge takeaway moment. I again, you are articulating exactly this. I've never thought about it that way. But when you say <laughs> when you articulate it in that way, I know exactly what you're talking about because now I will remember you and the ramen versus the night out with the friends. It's much more memorable. It's much more relatable. Even if I'm not the type of person that did that, um, I now can imagine myself in that room with all your friends. I know that you're generous. I also know you're a little impulsive. I like it helps me get exactly, to know yeah. you so yes. quickly, right? Yeah. With one with one articulation. So that's a great takeaway: is actions versus adjectives. I I really love that. I want to quickly go back to how you hire your talent um, because I just so love the way that you grow them and accelerate them. We don't have that much time left. And then I'm going to ask you two lightning round final questions before we wrap up our conversation. But then you're so invested in developing your talent. How do you spot? It sounds to me like you prioritize hiring people early that you can really accelerate, find their talents and um, help them grow. That sounds like something you really enjoy doing, mentoring, uh, leading them, helping them discover this about themselves. What does that look like? What do you look for when you're hiring someone? And how do you know where to lean in to help them develop that skill set and bring out the very best in them? For me, I found that I found that uh, hiring too experienced people doesn't work for us because then it's, it's too much unlearning for that has to be done. So we started hiring like either people that only have one or two year experience or like right out of college. And the only thing I look for in the interview is their attitude, like we said before, right? Because I think once they, when, when they have the right attitude, anything can be taught. So what I look for is like their, their attitude towards learning, learning new things, and also how much interest they have in, in this, like if they're a programmer, how much interest they have in coding, right? Not just like, because a lot of people get into design. A lot of people go into finance because they want to look the part. They want to drive a nice car, wear a three-piece suit, and be called a banker. Not because they actually enjoy investment banking and you know things like that, right? Mm-hmm. So they enjoy the prestige. Yeah. Right. So that's what I look for, mm-hmm. number one. And mm-hmm. 
I found that that once that's in line, the rest can be taught. <laughs> I love that. I I wish as, this is a beautiful trend I'm seeing globally, especially um, among entrepreneurs like you, of really looking for that passion alignment. Like, do they light up when they talk about what you're working on, including like the challenges and the struggles and the really hard stuff? Um, does that excite them? Does it ignite them? No. Do they feel like their job is giving as much to them as they are giving to it? Uh, that is a golden moment. I, I so relate to that. The people that I've hired across my career and especially now in my own company, those are the ones that shine. Like we can do anything together yeah. um, when that alignment is there. It's um, Jeff used to call that hiring people you have to hold back, not push forward. <laughs> yeah, and I, love I, that. <laughs> I really think about that with every single interview. In fact, after the end of this podcast, I'm about to interview a candidate for one of my clients. And um, that is what I'm looking for is what is the alignment? Are they on the same trajectory? Are they have similar passion alignments? Do they enjoy the same kind of struggles? Do they have the same kind of growth goals and trajectory? And when those things are in place, yeah, I agree. The details kind of work themselves out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there is so much more I want to talk to you about, but I also want to be respectful of your time. So my favorite lightning round um, final questions are really about the future. I'm curious, what excites you about the future? Could be what you're working on or, sure. um, yeah. you know, whatever technologies, whatever it might be. And then I would love to know the best places where our listeners could follow along with your journey, connect with you and continue to learn from you. Right now, I'm super excited about my membership, Night All Nation, because um, I believe that. So right now, we're I think we're at a we're placed in education, where technology is making everything scale, right? Like Netflix, you know, things like that, like podcasts and things like that. But education hasn't quite found yet. Found that yet because you have these like you know, $5,000 courses, $15,000 masterminds, mentorships, which really does work, but it's not really scalable. Those things are not scalable, in my opinion. And then on, on the other end of the spectrum, you have these like $10 um, Skillshare courses that are scalable, but like 90% of people don't finish those. So not really scalable either. Yes, pricing-wise scalable, but not. It doesn't work. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to find a way how I can scale mentorship at $5 a month through the utilization of community. So peer-to-peer uh, -peer learning. And because I found that, that I'm a huge believer of practical learning, meaning that you don't actually learn anything until you actually do it, right? So Yes, you learn how to ride a bike theory-wise, but then you actually have to get on that bike to start learning it. And that's the environment to create. So, And that's, I think, the missing part of online education right now, the practical part, right? So I'm really excited about this. I, I, I want to solve this problem of online education and figure out a way to scale mentorship so that people that are like in India, Nigeria, who cannot afford the $15,000 mastermind, can still have the same kind of mentorship at $5 a month. I am very excited about that. As you know, I one of my biggest whys is I really want to democratize success. So thank you for paying that forward, all these things that you've learned, providing opportunities for mentorship. It's a really exciting space. So how can people learn, discover more about this course, more about what you're working on? Where can people follow along and connect with you so that they can be part of this journey? 
yeah i think my instagram is like the best place because i put all of my content there and even for my members i put their exclusive content through instagram stories so my instagram uh sun.e s-u-n.y-i so that's where you can find everything. <laughs> Everything's connected through there. I have been a longtime follower of yours, and I find doses of inspiration or little practical tips literally every day that I'm like, oh, right, Sun said this. I think of them all the time. They're very memorable. So, um, <laughs> yes, everyone should start following along. And Sun, thank you so much for sharing your journey, your wisdom, and this inspiration today. That I found this conversation full of light bulb moments. I really appreciate you joining us on the Bed of Yourself podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. Mm-hmm.